Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the content manager here at Patientworthy. And today we're going to be discussing a condition called periodic paralysis. It's a rare genetic disorder that is characterized by attacks of paralysis, weakness, and stiffness in the body. And to help with our discussion today, I'm happy to say we've got a very special guest. Dr. Steve Cannon is a professor and chairman of the Department of Physiology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Cannon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to participate. And we're very glad to have you on. Thank you for making time today. I know you have a very busy schedule. To start with, can you give us an overview of periodic paralysis for listeners who may not be familiar with the condition? Periodic paralysis is a rare inherited condition that affects muscle. By rare, I'm talking about an incidence, something in the range of one or two per hundred thousand individuals. So there might be something like 3,000 people in the United States with periodic paralysis. It runs in families. It's inherited in a dominant fashion. So if one person in the family has periodic paralysis, there's a 50% chance any of the first relatives uh, would also have the condition. The name is a little bit of a misnomer because there's nothing periodic about the attacks of weakness. Rather, the affected individuals have recurrent episodes of weakness that can be quite severe, uh, unable to get up out of bed or walk across the room. Usually, many muscles are affected in the arms, legs, as I say, difficulty with mobility. Fortunately, the muscles for breathing and swallowing are usually spared. So these individuals don't have catastrophic respiratory arrest or, or fatal events. There unfortunately have been a few fatalities, but it's exceedingly rare. One of the key features of this condition is that while these episodes of weakness may be severe in terms of loss of motor function, they are reversible. Without any specific intervention or medications, there's spontaneous recovery. Strength returns over a matter of hours to a day or so. So of course, this is wonderful for the patient because most of the time they're able to function normally, uh, go to school, uh, have full employment, uh, even participate in sports. But these attacks can be very troublesome, um, unpredictable exactly when they're going to come. The frequency can be anything from a couple of episodes in a lifetime to other individuals who might have uh, episodes almost daily. The episodes usually begin in early childhood, continue throughout life, change in nature to where they become uh, less frequent with age, but sometimes the recovery doesn't fully come back to 100%. So individuals say, you know, I'm just not quite where I used to be, I didn't fully recover, and this can linger for a couple of weeks. One of the most dreaded possible outcomes in this condition is that uh, individuals often eventually develop permanent weakness that usually affects the legs. There can be difficulty rising from a chair, climbing a flight of stairs, and for some individuals, um, they might even lose ambulation. This typically comes later in, in life, you know, age 50 or 60, but it's a concern that weighs very heavily on these individuals. And I know there are several different types of periodic paralysis. Can you touch on some of the different ways that this can manifest in someone? One of the hallmarks of periodic paralysis is that these episodes are often triggered by stimuli in the environment. So for example, there's one form uh, in which 
low blood potassium is a risk factor. If individuals eat a big carbohydrate meal, that causes a shift of potassium from the blood into cells, into muscle. And so 30 minutes or an hour after a large you know, meal with pasta and uh, vegging out on the couch, someone can bring on a severe attack of weakness. Exercise is also a trigger factor. So going out and playing uh, you know, full court basketball for an hour, running around, uh, really high intensity exercise, individuals don't get weak during the physical activity, but curiously, after stopping to rest, within 15 or 20 minutes, they may become severely weak, uh, unable to get up out of the chair, and then take an hour or so to recover. Yet another form um, has episodes that are triggered by cold temperatures. So some individuals um, going outside in the winter experience weakness or stiffness of the muscles, or doing something like rinsing vegetables under cold water in the sink, the hands cramp up and become weak. So these are some of the tip-offs that this is uh, periodic paralysis and not some other form of weakness. So the potassium plays a really interesting role. I started out by mentioning there's a form where eating high-carbohydrate meals is a risk factor. The potassium will be low in the blood if uh, tested in the emergency room. But this is transient, will be most pronounced at the beginning of an attack and then spontaneously resolves. It's not because there's a deficit of potassium in the body. The potassium has shifted. It's in the wrong place. It moves into the muscle, and this impacts the electrical excitability of muscle and is the basis for the weakness. Interestingly, there are other patients with the familial periodic paralysis for whom episodes come when the blood potassium is high. So just the complete inverse. So if they eat foods that are high in potassium content or have periods of fasting, which can tend to make potassium shift out of cells, those events can trigger episodes in patients with so-called hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, meaning high potassium in the blood during periodic paralysis. So this is an important distinction to make because the management of symptoms uh, often involves lifestyle changes as the first approach towards improving quality of life and minimizing the frequency and severity of these attacks. But these lifestyle changes would be just the opposite for the two forms of periodic paralysis. So it's important to work with your physician, understand which type you have, and how to optimize the management, be that initially through lifestyle changes. And then there are even medications that can be used, uh, again, to provide symptomatic relief to minimize the frequency and severity of the attacks. So given that there can be a broad range of experiences among people who have periodic paralysis, and you mentioned that one challenge with this condition is that one of its primary symptoms is weakness, which is a symptom that's present in a wide range of conditions. What can the road to diagnosis look like for someone with periodic paralysis? This is really challenging in periodic paralysis. As you say, weakness is a very common symptom. So coming to the emergency department or seeing your primary care doctor in the outpatient setting, when you mention weakness, the number of possibilities is huge to begin to sift through this and consider what might be the cause. But what's even more challenging is these individuals experience severe weakness, you know, 
unable to walk, sometimes unable even to lift an arm or a leg off the bed. It can be that severe. And yet, by the time they get to the emergency room, see the triage nurse, get your insurance verified, get checked into a room, and have a doctor come see you, the attack begins to spontaneously resolve. That's part of the intrinsic nature of this condition. And so there can be, you know, a healthy degree of skepticism by the healthcare professional. They're saying, you know, wait a minute, you were so severe, you couldn't even get out of bed. And now you look pretty normal. And in between attacks, the exam is normal, even by, you know, a skilled neurologist who's familiar for looking for subtle signs of weakness. Patients are asymptomatic between attacks. So oftentimes, other possible diagnoses that are more common, like depression or, or fatigue or even you know, malingering or, or other uh, conditions are explored first. And it can be difficult convincing a healthcare provider that, that no, this is a bona fide organic condition where I have uh, trouble activating my muscle. So what can help is to have family members corroborate the story, give examples of what you're unable to do. If you just say, I'm, I'm weak, or I had no energy, that's nonspecific. But to say, you know, gosh, I couldn't even stand up, or my knees were buckling, or I couldn't dress myself, I couldn't raise a cup of coffee to drink by myself, that provides um, a lot more information. Or nowadays, take out the cell phone or have uh, one of your family members record the episode and show the healthcare professional. This can be very helpful uh, at arriving at a diagnosis. I don't mean to make light of it, obviously, but it almost reminds me of that old saying that when you're having trouble with your car and you bring it to the mechanic to get it looked at, it's never doing the thing that you're actually having trouble with, right? So it's it sounds like it can be very, very frustrating process to, to actually get this diagnosis. Exactly. In, in fact, if you look at some cohorts of individuals for whom the diagnosis has eventually been established, the delay to diagnosis is years, sometimes a decade or more, having seen multiple specialists before um, the correct diagnosis is established. You know, what it requires is recognition by the healthcare professional. This is a rare condition, something many specialists have only read about in books and have not had an opportunity to actually encounter an individual with this condition. So there's the recognition issue that's, that's difficult. There's the problem that patients are asymptomatic between attacks. There are a couple of objective tests that can be performed. Some electrical tests of muscle function that a neurologist can do in the outpatient clinic. And there's genetic screening available. As your audience probably knows in the rare disease space, the availability of gene testing has been just fantastic and, and changed the whole approach towards diagnosis, but it's not the panacea you might expect. The challenge is that if you see a variation in one of these genes associated with periodic paralysis, these are genes that regulate the excitability of muscle, identifying an abnormality is very informative and it, it helps the patient and the physician plan the intervention and the treatment. The problem is probably at least 20% of individuals who seem to clinically have uh, all the criteria to meet the diagnosis of periodic paralysis do not have an identified uh, mutation in genetic screening. So there's that problem. And the other is 
that, as you know, there are lots of variants, benign uh, substitutions, um, so-called SNPs or polymorphisms in DNA, for which it's difficult for us to understand whether this is uh, just noise out there in the genetic screen or is in some way related to causing symptoms in this individual. So we're working through that. That's part of the active research to understand the consequences of specific variants in the gene test results. But there's a lot of work to be done, and uh, it's still an ongoing process. And this being a genetic condition, obviously, kind of as you touched on there, there's no cure for it currently. But what does the current treatment landscape look like for periodic paralysis, and what's on the horizon? So the first line for disease management is lifestyle changes. So we help the patient understand which conditions uh, typically bring on attacks, how with simple things like the way in which you exercise, warming down afterwards, avoiding large carbohydrate meals, things like this can help minimize the frequency and severity of attacks. If that doesn't provide adequate control of symptoms, there are medications, things like potassium supplements for those who have the low potassium form or other medications that uh, admittedly were sort of discovered empirically to be used in a preventive sense. So these medications would be taken daily, again, to reduce the likelihood uh, of an episode or, or the severity if one does occur. But admittedly, all of these are symptom management. It's an inherited condition because of point mutations in a gene that changes uh, the function of one of these uh, ion channels that regulates excitability of muscle. So we study this in the lab and we're learning new angles, new approaches to take to help with the fundamental problem of muscle excitation. So there's repurposing other medications that are out there. Much of this is in the clinical trial stage now, but that's on the horizon. And then of course, the holy grail is you know, gene editing technologies. So this applies to all inherited conditions. And we're excited about the fact that we're actually doing this in the laboratory now. So we have genetically engineered mouse models of periodic paralysis. We can explore what interventions might work. We're looking at these gene editing technologies now to hopefully one day correct the mutation because what we're motivated to do is prevent this late onset permanent weakness that can really be debilitating and cause someone to lose ambulation. That's how we'd like to help these individuals. Let's turn to your experiences as a neurologist for a moment. One of your focuses over your career has been in neuromuscular disorders. And I know in particular, this has been a condition of interest for you, periodic paralysis. How have you seen the research approach to this condition change over the course of your career? So I first became involved performing research and following patients with periodic paralysis 30 years ago. And as someone who's a physician scientist, it was just mind-boggling how these individuals could have really severe episodes of weakness, failure of muscle excitation, really dramatic abnormality in the function of muscle, and only to have it reverse on its own within a few hours. And so to me, it was initially an intellectual curiosity. I got in sort of the ground floor of this condition in which in the day, uh, sort of primitive genetic approaches, something called genetic linkage was used to show that periodic paralysis 
might be with one of these genes, a so-called ion channel that regulates skeletal muscle. And in fact, periodic paralysis was the first channelopathy to be recognized in, in human disease. So ion channels are important for regulating the excitability of the heart, skeletal muscle, and the brain. So there are a lot of conditions, epilepsy, arrhythmia, certain forms of migraine headache, and periodic paralysis that are all caused by defects in the electrical excitability of these tissues. This is a process that's needed for the normal signaling and, and functioning of these tissues. So what's happened in the field is in the beginning, everyone was excited to hunt for the mutations. You would find these patients where the conditions run in a family. Molecular geneticists would look for a defect, see if in fact it was an ion channel gene. Our lab got involved in expressing these channels in the laboratory, measuring the function. In what way is this channel misbehaving? How might this affect the excitability of a cell? A lot of excitement about that in the 1990s. The research then shifted into making genetically engineered mouse models of these disorders. Because now the question was, okay, you've verified that this variation in the genetic code for a channel changes the channel function, but why does this individual get paralysis? Why is it intermittent? Why are there environmental triggers? And that's where creating the animal models has been so powerful to understand how having the gene defect sort of creates the susceptibility. But the symptoms are brought out by these environmental triggers. And we now understand how these stresses of changing in temperature or potassium or a lot of things that change in muscle in response to vigorous exercise will reveal this underlying susceptibility to loss of muscle excitation from the channel defect. So this has been very powerful and it's sort of cutting edge of where we now are uh, exploring opportunities to improve the options for intervening here and improving symptomatic management. And as I say, going for the holy grail, if you will, and doing gene editing so that you could really have a cure for these individuals. I want to preface this next question by saying that if someone listening has any questions about what they're hearing today, the best thing for them to do is speak with their doctor about their specific circumstances. But for anyone listening who may be newly diagnosed with periodic paralysis, do you have any good resources for support that they can look into? Best resource that I've come across is the Periodic Paralysis Association. So this is a wonderful example of the power of social media. Uh, these families um, organized in the early 1990s and 2000, and um, it now is an international group of uh, families, caregivers, and affected individuals with periodic paralysis. On their website, they have helpful literature, information, not only for patients and their families, but also clinicians, because many physicians are unfamiliar with this condition. There's a panel of experts. I serve along with several of my colleagues on this panel. And we're happy to answer questions, provide information in terms of interpreting genetic tests, uh, helping someone understand whether their symptoms are consistent with periodic paralysis, make individuals aware of local experts who are available to treat this condition. Another um, benefit provided by the Periodic Paralysis Association is annual meetings. Recently, they've been virtual because of the pandemic, but once a year, sometimes in the United States, one time it was abroad in Ireland, individuals come together, several hundred people, affected individuals and their families, and healthcare professionals and researchers 
to meet for a weekend and share experiences and uh, latest treatment options with periodic paralysis. I've attended about 10 of these and it's wonderful for me. I mean, as a physician scientist, really motivated to make a difference in this condition, one of the challenges is in my practice, I typically had only three or four affected individuals. It's so rare, but to go to this meeting and be able to interact with a hundred people with periodic paralysis is just incredible. And I've learned so much about the disease that I, I really uh, am grateful to these individuals for sharing these stories. And I think they get a lot out of it too. So this is a wonderful venue for people who might not even be sure yet if they have periodic paralysis to really learn from interacting with families and healthcare professionals to learn more about this condition and see if it's relevant to your family. You touched on friends and family and how they can take videos or, or maybe back up on an emergency room trip, uh, what the patient is, is saying, what they were experiencing at the time. Uh, what are some other ways that friends and family can help be supportive of someone with periodic paralysis? So it's very important to engage your entire family and, and community in optimizing the management. So Having people understand how important it might be that you regulate your level of physical activity or diet or, or have interventions available. So, for example, I know some individuals with the hypokalemic form of periodic paralysis, so the attacks occur in low potassium, and the episodes often happen with first awakening in the morning. And so individuals are very careful to have potassium supplement all mixed up in a solution with a bendy straw sitting in a cup right on the nightstand. So having that available or having a family member available that you can summon by hitting a button on a medical alert wristlet or something like that is very important to make sure help is available when needed. Fortunately, I mentioned that breathing and swallowing are usually maintained, so it's not life-threatening. But as you can imagine, you could be in a very uncomfortable position, uh, need assistance repositioning, uh, able to sit up so that if you take your potassium supplement, you aren't at risk of aspirating and vomiting, uh, which could have you know dire secondary consequences of pneumonia and things like that. So family members who can assist during an attack, also who can help in a situation where the individual feels an attack coming on. So I didn't mention it before, but an important feature of this condition is that the attacks gradually come on over, over minutes and the affected person knows it's coming and can alert bystanders. So this is helpful in making the diagnosis. It's not a drop attack like a fainting spell or a seizure. And also you can enlist bystanders to help make sure you're safe. Obviously, you wouldn't want to be up on a ladder or swimming or something like that. It's important to get to safety, but also just being in a position where you're not at risk of a fall can be helpful. Another adjuvant that's become very popular is uh, canine assistance dogs. So the dogs can bring items or alert others in the family when they recognize an individual is having an onset of weakness. So these many ways in which families assistance dogs and a whole community can help someone with periodic paralysis are very important in putting together a management plan for this chronic condition. Well, Dr. Cannon, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today and introducing our audience to this condition. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you.
Thank you very much. Happy to participate. And if you'd like to learn more about periodic paralysis and our partner organization, the Periodic Paralysis Association, as Dr. Cannon mentioned, you can check out their website at www.periodicparalysis.org. And we'll also leave a link in the show notes for this episode so you can check that website out. And remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting patientworthy.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram by searching for Patientworthy on those platforms. A quick shout out to those listeners who have been leaving reviews on their favorite podcasting platforms. It may seem like a small thing, but it really does go a long way toward helping us out. And finally, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or if you have ideas for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to Colby, that's C-O-L-B-Y, at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to Dr. Cannon from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and thank you for listening. 